You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. This is a wonderful day, and I'm really honored to uh, keep this tradition going of, uh, of preaching on the first Sunday of the new year. It's a great joy, and I'm and also uh, I'm very proud of the Huskies because they played uh, the four greatest teams in America played football yesterday. And the Huskies were there, and they played with distinction, and we have a lot to be proud of there. And, and also, uh, today in worship service is a colleague of mine who was a colleague during my, most of my time here at UPC, Art Beals. He was Minister of Urban and Global Mission, and uh, he's here in church today. I hugged him this morning, and I'm just so happy that he's here. So uh, one, of the, one of the great... Uh, Pastors in the history of our church is Art Beals. By the way, he had a very famous saying. Uh, it, it was a dangerous one, but people would go in to see him, and we had this saying in the staff that Art Beals, uh, that first Art Beals believes that God loves you. So he would always say, God loves you. And then Art Beals has a plan for your life. And. <laughs> And we had a lot of people that were sent to various mission uh, challenges because of that wonderful truth that God loves you. And Art Beals has a plan for your life. He had a plan for my life, too. We, we had such a grand time together during uh, our uh, time as pastors together. I have a great text for you today. It's 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, verses 2 to 6. And it's a, it's a great encouragement text in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, as you know, the very first book of the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians that St. Paul wrote. And so here you have the first sentences of St. Paul in letters that he wrote to the churches in the first century Christian church. And this is one of the great ones. It's an, it's an encouragement text. And in this text, Paul gives thanks for a group of ordinary people who lived in Thessalonica. He had been there with them, and he had now gone on to, probably wrote this letter from Corinth, where he was for two and a half years, and he is thankful for these people. And in this, he thanks them for their faith. We get the four great words of the Christian, of our Christian relationship with Jesus Christ. Faith, he thanks them for their faith, their love, their hope, and then this fourth surprise word, their joy. Those four words. And they become very major words in St. Paul. He uses them a lot. And he thanks uh, the Thessalonians for those words, for those great ingredients of their own journey with Christ. But Paul is a teacher, too. So he not only thanks God for their faith, their love, their hope, and their joy, but he adds a word to each one as a teacher and helps us really understand what those words mean and what may, they would have meant to the Thessalonians, too. So let me read the text to you, because he adds a word to each of those great words. He says, we always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your, now here they come, your work of faith. Your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then that fourth word. And in spite of the word here, the RSV says persecution, but that's not the right word. There's a different word here. It's the word flixus. In spite of intense pressure. And in spite of intense pressure, which the people had in Thessalonica, you receive the word with joy. So there's the fourth word. Your work of faith, first of all. Paul, the teacher now, adds a word to each of these great words. Well, you know, work is, is the Greek word erg. It's a word that's come into the scientific vocabulary of science because erg is a unit of energy in physics. But it's the Greek word that's used by St. Paul. He uses it a lot. The work of faith. Um, it's basic because we would have no faith at all without the work of God. As Karl Barth loves to say, the word and the work are inseparable in Jesus Christ. You cannot separate what Jesus says. That's why he can't be just treated as a teacher. You cannot separate what Jesus says from what he did. Work means, erg means a unit of energy. It means an event that happens because of something. And the work of Jesus Christ happened at the cross. It happened when he defeated uh, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death, and he absorbed human sins, all at that great, incredible work moment. And there would be no faith without that work. So he says, your work of faith, because also there's a second thing to understand about faith. Faith, first of all, is a decision that we make. Uh, maybe we start reading the New Testament or the reading the gospel records. Maybe you're in a small Bible study group. That's the way it happened for me. And you met Jesus in the New Testament. You met him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You met him by anticipation in the Old Testament. And you met him and he won your respect so that you came to respect him. That's a few inches away from faith. And then you decide finally to take the promises that he gave, that what he taught what he said, and you decide to make an event of it in your life, to trust it, to put your weight down upon it. St. Paul uses this word work decisively in the Philippian letter. In the Philippian letter, he has a great song. It's very famous. It's called the Philippian song, where he tells about how Christ died in our behalf. Though he was equal with God, he humiliated himself, came to the cross, and died at the cross, and then the God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Christ every knee should bow. That great song. Did you know the next sentence after that song is, is this in Philippians 2? Paul says, as you've always listened to me, listen to me now, with fear and trembling, the salvation that you have from this great work of Christ, make an event of it, work it out. For God is at work to will and to make this happen to his good decision in your life. So that's the sentence that follows that marvelous, great, the great song. So he says, with fear and trembling, the salvation that you have from him, work it out. Erg, the same word, work it out. Make an event of it. Act it out in your life. 
for God is at work in you to do and to, and to fulfill his good decision. So God works, you work. And so Paul teaches about faith in just this wonderful tribute he gives to these Thessalonians. Notice, your work of faith. You have made an event of what you, you trust. You believe in what he said, now you put your weight down on it. That's what faith is. Then, your labor of love. Now, it's interesting. That sounds like almost the same word, but it's not. It's a different word. The word for labor, kapos, is used always in the New Testament to refer to heavy work or sweaty work. It's, it's, an, uh, a very, uh, it's a very earthy word. It's used, as a matter of fact, our Lord uses it in one of his most famous promises. He says, come unto me, all you that labor, he uses that word, and then they use it twice, and are overworked, are heavy laden, is the way the RSV puts it. Those of you who work, but work very hard, come unto me, and I will give you pause. And then he invites us to take his yoke upon, uh, with us. So Jesus used, uses that very word, that heavy work. And it's interesting that Paul decides to attach that word to love. Love is heavy lifting. Love is hard work. It's a decision you make because you've experienced God's love, because, beloved, let us love one another, because we've been loved by an event love, by Jesus Christ, what he did in our behalf. And now we're to physically, concretely love. It's, it's hard work. Our Lord makes this very vivid for us in a parable, interestingly enough. In the, Luke, in the 10th chapter of Luke, he has a question asked of him by a young lawyer. The lawyer comes up to him and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the, law, and the lawyer got the right answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God. Notice that's the great, that's the great Levitical statement of, of the fulfillment of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So then the lawyer said to him, the first Jesus said, uh, you have given the right answer. Now do this, you live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's a huge tribal question. As you know, it's bothering everybody in the world today. Who is my neighbor? Who, do I, who should I pay attention to? Who should I care about? Who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? And then at that point, Jesus tells his most famous parable. A parable about a man that went down between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he fell among robbers marauders and the marauders he our lord puts it very powerfully they beat him they stripped him naked and they left him half dead on the side of the road and then two people come by and it's interesting our lord shows no interest in them whatsoever a priest and a levite came by and they passed by and they don't have any more part to play in the story they're finished uh, they missed out but there's a third man who comes who's a samaritan and then our Lord says the Samaritan went to the man, but it's before he said he went to him, he said he had compassion for him. Now that is one of the strongest of the love words in the New Testament. 
It's, it's the Greek word, splegama. It comes from gut. It comes from your bowel, from who you are, what you feel. It is a word that is very strong. It's, it's used by our Lord in this great text. He had compassion. He felt love toward him. Notice, it's earthy. It's practical. It's from his body he felt love for this man. Not just that he did it intellectually, but he felt it from him, his inside. And then he went and he helped him. He put olive oil on him. He put wine on him. A little bit of first aid. Notice he doesn't do brain surgery. He does a little first aid. Don't overplay this parable. And he doesn't take the man to his home for the rest of his life. He just does a little first aid. But it's risky because maybe the marauders are still around. And then he lifts him to his own burrow, to his own donkey. That's a big job. The man is half dead. He's been stripped naked, so he has to put something over him and put him on his, on his donkey. And if this man is wearing Levi's, imagine how they're getting, they're torn now because he's, he's uh, working with the rocks and this guy is in the side of the rocks. In fact, maybe they use rocks to beat this man. So now he's got jagged holes in his jeans. He's got a sweaty t-shirt as he takes this man and puts him on the donkey and brings him to an inn. The Samaritan himself is worse for wear, but he brings him to the Samaritan, to the inn, and says, take care of him. I'll be back in another day or so. If I, owe, if I owe anything for it, then I'll pay you then. And then he leaves. That's it. But notice, uh, when he comes into the inn, he doesn't look very presentable himself, except that he brings this man and says, I will pay whatever is, is due after when I get back. That's love. And... Uh, by the way, you know, we live in an age now where we can have imaginary love like this. We can go to uh, and buy designer jeans by Abercrombie and Fitch that are already torn. You don't, you don't have to tear your jeans caring for the guy on the side of the road. You can buy them and they're designer jeans, Calvin, uh, Calvin Klein, and they're designer. They're already ripped. And also from Calvin Klein, you can buy a t-shirt already sweat marked so that you can, instead of you don't have to go to the gym, the, 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 the t-shirt already has a sweat mark on it. And it's marvelous that we have that kind of imaginary, uh, imaginary signs of hard work. Uh, boy, we've worked so hard, my designer jeans can prove it to you. Uh, but you know, this is better than designer jeans. This guy has got a torn, he's got torn pants. He's got a sweaty t-shirt because he had labor of love, see? And Jesus wants us to know that, that love is labor. Love is hard work. And he puts it in as the second great word of our journey with, with Christ. We experience his love, and that was hard, hard work love on the part of our Lord as he died on the cross on our behalf. And now we have a practical hard work love as well. Now the third word, your endurance of hope. This, as you know, is one of my very favorite words. I first heard it from Howard Butt, my great friend who just died a few months ago. And he, uh, I heard him give a talk in which he said, the word that means the most to me is upomeno. And he said it about 10 times in the one sermon, upomeno. To hang in there, it means under, stay, stay under, hold on, don't give up, endure. That is the New Testament word for endurance. Paul uses it many times. He loves this word, upomeno. It's not triumphant. It's, it's 
very earthy, and it's very, uh, it's hanging on, surviving, staying put. Uh, it's it's uh, faithful presence in the midst of the world. And that's the word that our, that St. Paul uses here now. You have the upomeno of hope. He combines it with hope. Hope hangs in there. Hope stays. Hope doesn't run away. It holds on with you. It stays. But by the way, hope does more than that too. It also is optimistic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a wonderful line he put in his letters and papers from prison uh, where he, he talked about hope as the view from underneath which is the upomeno hanging in there. But then he gave the other side of hope when he said this. But, and he uses the word optimism to describe this side of hope. He said, it's wiser to be pessimistic. It's a way of avoiding disappointment and ridicule. But the essence of optimism is not its view of the present, but its inspiration for life and hope when others give in. And then he talks about this. The optimism that is will for the future should never be despised, even if it's proved wrong a hundred times. It is health and vitality, and the sick man has no business to impugn it. And then he goes on to say, some people think that it's impious to hope for any better future. They think that the meaning of the present events is chaos and disorder and catastrophe. And therefore, resignation is surrender of all responsibility for future generations. Some say, say that. But it may be that the day of judgment will dawn tomorrow. And in that case, Bonhoeffer says, then we'll gladly stop working for a better future, but not before. And that's his definition of hope. Hope is upomeno, it's hanging in there, but hope is also hoping for a better future. I love The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And in Pilgrim's Progress, we have these amazing characters uh, that are kind of, uh, that are made allegorical. Like we have, the, we meet a character named Mr. Faithful. Unfortunately, he dies in Vanity Fair City because he is burned at the stake because this was written during the time when people were burned at the stake. So his, for his faith, he died. But there are other characters that are with Pilgrim after that, and one of them is Hopeful. Hopeful is with Pilgrim. They were at Vanity Fair together, and then they move on, on the King's Highway, and they have a, a, a raging river they have to get through, so they become very exhausted. And then they find a meadow where they can fall asleep, and they fall asleep. Hopeful and Christian fall asleep. And then they discover when they wake up that they're on the grounds of the giant despair. His, his terror territory. They had no right to fall asleep there. And so he takes them captive and puts them in his dungeon. This is one of the most marvelous parts of Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and Hopeful are put in the dungeon, and then they're beaten by uh, this uh, giant despair. By the way, his wife's name is Diffidence. How do you like that? Uh, She's the one who tells him to advise the, the two pilgrims that they should do away with their lives because they'll never get out of here. It's an interesting portrayal of depression that is given by John Bunyan. So he says, here's Hopeful and Christian are in the, in the castle of giant despair in his dungeon. And the, the giant tries to beat them with a cudgel. But he then has one problem. He begins to have fits and gets weak in the middle of beating him so he doesn't quite finish him off. 
But he does it three times, he beats them, and he says, the next time, I'm going to really finish you off. So you should, do, like your, my wife says, you should do away with yourselves, because I'll, I'll, you'll never get out of here. And Hopeful plays an interesting role with Christian. Hopeful urges Christian to stay there and hope that maybe the giant will lose his energy finally and he'll get out, or the giant will forget something and they'll be able to sneak out. And so that's what Hopeful tells Christian. In other words, he hangs in with Christian. And at one point when Christian wonders if he should do away with himself, Christian hears from Hopeful, oh no, you can't do that, that's against the law of God. You're not allowed to kill yourself. That is against God's law. So don't do that. Don't do that. And so Christian decides not to do that. Then in the middle of the night, uh, after four days in the dungeon, Christian wakes up and says, what a fool I am. I have a key in my bosom called promise. You see, the giant had searched them, but he didn't search him well enough. I have a key around my neck called promise that I'm sure will open any door. And at that point, Hopeful plays another role. Hopeful says, good, try it out. <laughs> see, that's the optimism of Bonhoeffer. Try it out. See if it'll work. And so I love this part of Pilgrim's Progress. They go to the first door in the middle of the night now, and they use the key, and the door opens easily. It worked. Then they go to the second gate, and it opens easily. Wow, I love it. Then they come to the third door. This is the best of all. They come to the third door, and John Bunyan puts it this way, and that lock went damnable hard, <laughs> yet the key did open it. I carved that on driftwood, you know. I carved things on driftwood at Whidbey Island in the summer, and I carved that. That lock went damnable hard. That was a lot of words to put into a driftwood, too. <laughs> that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. But when it opened, it made such a screeching sound that it woke up the giant. And his wife said, you better go after him. And the giant goes after him, and guess what? He has one of his fits and loses strength. And they get out. Despair is not as powerful as it says it is. And that's what John Bunyan is teaching us. But Hopeful plays that role. He plays the double role. One, of hanging in there with Christian and cautioning Christian from doing anything foolish. And then when he finds that key, key it's Hopeful who says, go for it. Let's go for it and try to get those doors open. That's hope. And then there's the third word, the fourth word. The fourth word is in spite of of affliction. The word, by the way, is flixus in Greek. It is affliction. In spite of affliction or intense pressure would probably be the best English translation of flixus, affliction. In spite of intense pressure, you receive the word of the Lord with joy. Joy. That's an amazing word. What is joy? The word chara in Greek is literally the word surprise, but it's used positively. And when it's used positively, it's translated joy. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, when he told the story of his life, wrote a biography, an autobiography called Surprise by Joy, which is a play on words. And Lewis was a philologist, so he knew that. It's surprise by surprise. I was surprised. Joy showed up. I didn't expect it. I never expected it. 
it showed up. And you know, it's interesting. That's what, uh, that's what St. Paul puts as the fourth great word. The fourth great word of the Christian walk. Faith, the work of faith, the labor of love, oh, that's a gritty one, the endurance of hope, and the surprise of joy. And in the midst of affliction, the surprise of joy. J.R. Tolkien helped me more than anybody else to understand this. He was explaining really in a way the happy ending of the great Lord of the Rings, his great story, the, the, the trilogy that he wrote. Uh, the Return of the King, the last of that trilogy, is probably one of the greatest books I ever read in my life. And he's explaining the joy that happens. And he puts it this way. He says, uh, the surprise of joy, I'm quoting from Tolkien now, is not escapist. It's not fugitive. It is miraculous grace. It's the sudden joyous turn. And that's the title I gave for today's sermon. The sudden joyous turn. Listen to what he goes on to say. It does not deny the existence of sorrow or failure. The possibility of those is necessary for joy to be the joy of deliverance. But it can give to a child. I love that he put this in. It can give to a child or a man who hears it. When the turn comes, the joyous turn comes, it causes that man or child to catch his breath and it gives him a beat and a lifting of the heart. That's joy. Joy by surprise. And Paul saw that. Paul has joy in his life and he shares it with the Thessalonians. They had it too. Even in the midst of a riot that occurred in Thessalonica, there was a sort of sudden turn of joy when something turned out better than they expected. It's the, it's the happy ending. It's the good. What, I'll read what Tolkien says again. The surprise of joy is not escapist. It's not fugitive. It is miraculous grace. The sudden joyous turn. You know, the work of faith is great because you have to, you have to make your faith, actually, you have to do something with your faith and not just believe something. Do you know from this very pulpit a number of years ago, I taught you all how to ski, downhill ski. <laughs> I've had people tell me that I helped them actually to get courage to go to Snoqualmie Pass and to fall a few times to try to do, to follow my, because I said, you may be remember, but I said skiing is very simple because there's only three rules to remember. You don't have a lot of rules to remember, only three. And if you follow the three rules, you can do downhill skiing. And I promise you from this very pulpit that many of you took me up on it. And, uh, uh, and I, always, I also promise that if you follow these rules, you won't break your knees. You won't get a, a, a break. Uh, you may have other problems like a jam thumb and stuff like that when you fall. The, but you won't get a, a broken you won't get a broken knee if you follow these rules. Here are the three simple rules of skiing. You have to go to the top of the hill first. Uh, you can't ski at the bottom. You have to go to the top, ride the chairlift up. That's, uh, that itself is challenging, but you can do it with, with the help. 
they now have quad chairs. So five people can help you off. So you can get up there. So you get to the top of the hill. The first rule is you have to face down the hill. Not across the hill. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to do a lot of traverses. That's the, way I, it's the worst way to learn to ski. Because you're making all the wrong moves when you do that. You have to face down the hill. Second rule is you have to have enough speed to execute a turn. Okay. As these rules are getting to be a little counterintuitive, uh, a little bit against what you'd think, I, shouldn't I start really slow? No, you have to have enough speed to execute a turn. So you need to have some, some speed when you go down. And now the third rule is the most important rule. You must put your weight on the downhill ski, not the uphill ski. If your weight's on the uphill ski, you'll have the terrible falls. That's how you break your ankle or break your knee. Uh, you have to have your weight on the downhill ski. The only problem is it's counterintuitive. You say, I, I, if I'm going to ski, I want to get as close to the mountain as possible. No, you want to be as far from the mountain as possible. You want to go down the mountain and you want to put your weight on the downhill ski, which means your uphill ski is going to be lighter and the downhill ski will be the weight. And that's how you turn. And by the way, a fourth rule is you never stop. You always turn. Never say stop. Never do that to a kid. Tell them turn. Because you turn, that's how you stop. So that skiing, I said, you know, I said from this pulpit, and I didn't take very long. You've all learned to ski now. It's three simple steps. There's only one problem with the three rules. They go contrary to your instinct. Your instinct is stay close to the mountain. Your instinct is to go slow. Your instinct is to go across the hill. No, go down the hill. Put your weight on the downhill ski, and then you can turn, and then switch downhill skis, and you can turn again. Wow, it gets to be, it's not bad at all. And that's how you learn to ski. But notice what happens. What you had to do was you had to trust the truth, the truth of the ski instructor. You had to trust the truth of the, of the physics of skiing. And that physics means that the weight has to be in the downhill ski. And so you trust that and put your weight on it. That's the work of faith. The work of faith, the erg of faith. Notice what Paul says, because of your salvation, work it out. Put your weight down on the salvation you have from Jesus Christ. For God is at work in your life. He promises that. He's at work in your life. You work. You put your weight down. I became a Christian that way. I was at a retreat in Mount, up at Lake Tahoe sophomore at UC Berkeley, and Dr. Robert Boyd Munger, my beloved pastor at Berkeley, who later was on the staff here of this church as well, he put it this way. He says, when on the basis of what you know about Jesus Christ, you're willing to trust in his trustworthiness, then you're ready to become a Christian. Then you're ready to put your weight down on the truth. The truth is that you, you're, not, you're not right to be the Lord of your life. I realize today there's a lot of that out there, that what you need to be is the Lord of your life. And you don't need anybody to tamper with that. You need to be the one who makes all the decisions for your life, and you need that. No, it's better to trust in the faithfulness and the truth of Jesus Christ uh, and trust in his, in his reign in your life. So it, but it's a little bit counterintuitive. To trust him. To trust, and he says, put your weight on the downhill ski, do it. A little speed, do it. Uh, and then uh, uh, 
face down the hill rather than across the hill, do it. And then, you know what happens? The funny thing that happens, and I love the way Tolkien puts it, he says that this joy that happens is not escapist, it's not fugitive, it's miraculous grace, it's a sudden joyous turn. And when you're able to turn on a mountain, that's the moment when kids start singing songs while they're skiing. I'm sitting on top of the world. When you can turn. When you can turn. Then you can stop. And you can stop theatrically up in front of people too. <laughs> spraying them with snow. But you can do it when you can turn. And when you can turn because you have your weight on the downhill ski. When you trust the Lord. And then you get the joy. Isn't it interesting? The joy comes forth. First the work of faith. Then the labor of love. Then the upomeno of hope and then the sudden turn of joy when you put it all together and it works. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great text from St. Paul and thank you that we are here as your people and now as we come to the time of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the work of your faithfulness that makes our work possible. Bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.